I uh, was asked by uh, Professor Ramachandran to talk about a concept I developed about 25 years ago called mimetic culture, and I ended up talking about skill, and you might wonder why. Well, I was looking for the master adaptation, that is the, the adaptation early in human evolution that was the platform on which our later cognitive evolution could have been built. So I'm looking for um, what Dan Dennett would call the, the evolutionary trick that allowed us to build the human world. And um, that uh, trick, I would argue, has had a lot to do with the refinement of skill. Um, skill is uh, really, refined skill is the ability to install new subsystems, new architectures in the, in the mind. So it's a very fundamental thing. Uh, Colin Renfrew was talking about the master tool, the, the, the stone tools from which you could make other tools like spears and cut hides and so on. Well, there has to be a mind tool, there has to be a system in the mind from which you can construct all the other elements of the human world. And uh, um, I'm going to just run some images of skills, of, of refined skills in human culture by you. And I want you to think about the core adaptation that may be at the, so, at the center of this and what may be the driving forces behind it. So I'll just show you a series of images. Uh, you can see that uh, the images uh, get more complex as I go along because skills are arranged in hierarchies. And the hierarchies are not only internal. For example, when you, when you learn the piano, you learn uh, a whole series of hierarchical skills. You're driving the car. You learn how, what, how much pressure to put on the accelerator, how to brake, how to look in the mirror, how to back up, how to park. You put all this together in higher and higher uh, level uh, integrated uh, performances and they become automated and buried in the system. But you also embed skill in hierarchies in society in what I would call a distributed cognitive system so that these skills, all of, all of the skills, many skills involved in these images are coordinated uh, on a very high level in a distributed system. And as human society gets more complicated, the skills become embedded in larger and larger systems uh, that uh, uh, harness and embed individual skills in a larger structure, that is a collective structure. And my argument for 20 years has been that our evolutionary innovation was the distributed cognitive systems of culture that, that have no equivalent in any other species. Sometimes skill is focused just on the body. That is to say, uh, especially in the modern world, we have isolated uh, uh, skills that focus on particular combinations, but even these are hierarchical. You have to master any of these skills uh, in a series of movements that take a great deal of time. Now, these are all procedural in the, in the sense that Terry was uh, reviewing. Procedural memory, I don't like that term, but I, it, is a, it is one we have to live with. That takes great repetition and continuous practice to refine. And at the end of the day, you end up with skills of this complexity, of enormous complexity, that uh, are the, in the high arts and in the modern forms of uh, athletics, which require extraordinary talent, that is an extraordinary nervous system, in addition to extraordinary amounts of preparation. Now, what do you draw from all this? You've looked at all these things. What are, what are the common elements? Well, one of the things that struck me when I was putting these images together was 
the number of times in those images, I would say over 90% involve material culture. Over 90% of those skills involve mastering a relationship with a manufactured, modified piece of the environment that has been somehow transformed by human activity. And the other element is that it requires a basic adaptation in the brain. So there are two things interacting. Some adaptation, but I would call a master adaptation in the brain, which allows us to restructure our minds and acquire completely new cognitive architectures, driven by the obvious adaptive advantages of harnessing the environment uh, and uh, manufacturing uh, devices that extend our powers. Now, it's interesting that the earliest incidents in archaeology of, of tools and of uh, evidence for refined skill is in material culture. And if you look at the dating of some of these images, the earliest stone tools that have been documented are approximately two and a half million years old. There's some evidence uh, of butchering of animals even three and a half million years ago, but they haven't yet found any of those tools. Around 1,800,000 and afterwards, you have the more complex tools of the Acheulean culture, which are master tools. That is to say, the cutters can be used to, to prepare other things out of soft material. And the uh, hand axes are great crushers for, uh, for a variety of purposes. So these are tools that make tools th that make the species much more powerful. It took a very long time, almost two million years, a year, uh, to get to the point of the expansion of, of that toolkit in the Upper Paleolithic. Um, as Colin says, it doesn't look all that impressive, but in fact, don't forget, these are the sharpest, hardest objects. They can be used for all sorts of purposes, and they have served us very well historically. Now, what is this master adaptation I was talking about? I've argued that it is a process called mimesis, and mimesis is basically reenactment of a perceived event. The, the standard routine is, is what you call review and rehearse. So you plan, you execute, you review in imagination until you approximate an ideal of performance. And you do this over and over again, and children do this from a very young age. What's interesting, from a comparative point of view, is that no other species does this. For example, um, various primates throw projectiles at one another when they have battles, but you'll never see a primate standing in the forest all day, <laughs> practicing, approximating an ideal of performance. The same is true of manufacturing tools. Uh, manufacturing tool is a very complex operation, and quite independently of the scenarios that involve selecting materials and so on, there is this imaginative review. So this is new. This is evolutionarily new, and I would argue the basis of uh, human nonverbal culture as well as a platform on which uh, later adaptations, such as the one that Terry was talking about, where you link episodic to procedural memory. The first thing was a massive, massive change in the nature of procedural memory and the feed feedback systems that go into it. To go in, I can't go into this in great detail, but basically I've given an example here of a dancer because it's a very informative. Mimesis is supermodal and it's metacognitive. And those are two terms that I'll break down a bit. Um, supermodal means above modality. So when, when an animal or a human interprets an event, the event is likely to have aspects that are visual, auditory, vibratory, body sense, and so on. And those things are not necessarily neatly correlated, and yet any mammal can effortlessly piece together all the bits and pieces that constitute 
the experience of a dogfight, for example. Um, and they'll remember it very accurately. That is event perception. And the back part of the brain is largely devoted to doing that. Uh, we still don't really understand how that integration is achieved, but I assure you uh, there are many Nobel, Nobel Prizes in the future for those who can figure that out. But what they can't do is transform that event perception into an output that somehow resembles the event perception. We have isolated output systems for various systems. I have simply listed parts of the body, but in fact, they tend to be organized in things like auditory vocal systems, eye-hand coordination systems, locomotor systems, and so on. The point is the dancer, a skilled dancer, can map any of those sources of rhythm, which is an abstract pattern in time, onto any of those output systems. So reenactment, mimetic reenactment, sits at the very top of the primate cognitive hierarchy. And it is logically and necessarily the first adaptation that humans had to go through before such fancy things as high-speed language could come along. The other thing about it, what's interesting, is that, of course, this is, this is play acting. This is pretend play. Rehearsing a skill is a fantasized action, and we can implement it. So it means that early on, humans became actors in a theater of culture. We are dramatic. We're, we're drama queens and drama kings, basically. Um, we perceive complex social scenarios, and we can imagine them and act them out. It's a very remarkable skill. I think that is quite independent of language. So I've, I've proposed on the basis of this uh, notion, the idea that um, the first culture of humans for several million years, based on fairly hard evidence from archeology span and uh, a, a sense of re re reverse engineering from cognitive uh, science, uh, that this adaptation must have sustained us for a very long period of time. It has interesting properties because in, in, by acquiring such a, a whole body mimetic capacity, it has effects on the emotive system, the skill system, the, and the pantomime system, basically uh, social custom and ritual of the entire society. And this would logically and inevitably have led to some form of non-linguistic gesture possibly what we would call proto-words, uh, although I'm not sure that's uh, meaningful. Now, one of the byproducts of this is a reciprocal control of attention because a skill-oriented society in which, anchored in material culture, a whole set of subroutines evolve over a very long period of time is necessarily one uh, where people are paying attention to one another and inter interacting. Um, what is very interesting about this uh, is that it renders the actions of the group coherent. So you can have group pantomime, group displays of, of conventionalized group displays of grief, group displays of celebration, group displays of, uh, of aggression, as in war cries, and so on. And these have not changed over the centuries. That picture was taken in New Orleans a couple of years ago. Basically, you read the same things in that crowd as you would read uh, in, in, in presumably a pre-linguistic group. Now, what does this mean? Well. Our, our conventional taxonomy places up in us with the anthropoidae on the basis mostly of anatomy and, and genetics, at least what we now know of genetics, which is probably uh, in the cognitive realm not very much. And what's interesting is that in classifying other species, we usually list their armamentarium of tools that, with which they deal with the world. So fangs, claws, um, horns, 
uh, stingers are, are tools with which animals face the world and, and cope. When we think of humans, we notice two things. First of all, the presence of material culture as a, as a very important thing. And the second thing is the collectivity, the interconnection between individuals that leads to organization. And that carried to, into the modern realm has exploded into uh, this incredible material environment. I'm, I'm calling it a cognitive ecology now because it's an ecology that we've been evolving for a long time, but that it has suddenly exploded with exponential speed. Um, which points to the true uniqueness of human cognition and the thing that I want, want to emphasize here. When we started this process two million or more years ago, it, it, it looked probably rather innocent in the sense that we were primates that could install new architectures and modify the physical environment. But if you think of those images of, that, of the wolf and the, and the cat and so on, in the process of acquiring new tools, especially tools that could make tools, we were introducing a, a radical change in our interaction with the world. Because, of course, imagine a wolf that could manufacture better fangs, uh, better claws, and so on. And that's effectively what we, were, what we were doing. We did this, and there's evidence early on, for cognitive communities. And the term I use is mind-sharing cultures. Now, the reason I've used that word is that our cultures are unique in the biosphere in that they are organized in, in terms of cooperative groups around circles of trust and most intimate ones being circles of love. These are cognitive judgments. They reduce uh, uncertainty and increase the pre predictability of interactions in special, special groups, but they're based on the sharing, usually, of some aspect of mind. And that includes the sharing of the nonverbal or physical aspect of the world that is expressed mimetically. These circles regulate empathic, emotional, and, and cognitive attunement among their members. It's what I call cognitive governance. Uh, you can't be a part of such a system, such a cognitive system, unless you've passed the test, as it were, of intimacy. And the final conclusion and the statement I, I've, I've made many times is that the human brain co-evolved with this collective process and with material culture for a very long time and cannot realize its design potential outside the distributed systems of culture. In other words, we have a brain that has evolved not in a modular sense of uh, being specialist, ready to face the world the way a wolf or a lion is. We have a brain that's necessarily almost anticipating being plugged into a distributed system. It's oriented to download and assimilate whatever that system happens to be, and therefore it has to be highly flexible. But the starting point, the master adaptation that led to all of this, was mimesis and the ability to install new skills. Thank you very much. Thank you.